My name is Pastor Steve Douglas. Uh, for those of you who might be new with us, uh, and I send greetings from Pastor Brent, who is filling in for another local pastor uh, over at uh, our sister church in Faribault. And so that pastor uh, was getting a much-needed vacation, and so pa uh, Pastor Brent is taking over the pulpit over there today. Uh, for those of you who are new, um, we have been walking through a series on the Gospel of John called Full of Grace and Truth. And uh, we took a break over the summer to go through our summer seminars looking at the foundations of our faith. But now we've hopped back into uh, the Gospel of John. And um, John has made this astounding claim throughout his Gospel that Jesus is not just a man. That Jesus is not just the Messiah. That Jesus is God. And last week, Pastor Brent brought us back into the series with the start of the Upper Room Discourse. And what this time is, uh, is it's this zoom in where, um, where John looks for several chapters at one evening, one night that Jesus has with his disciples during this Passover meal. And it's this really special time. And John is bringing together all of these different themes in sort of layers. And we've talked about those layers in the past. But another way of looking at it is maybe like threads that go into a tapestry. So there are all these threads that come from the Old Testament of themes or of prophecies that now are starting to come together and appear. And so we get to see this grand picture of what God is doing in Christ. And so during this Upper Room Discourse, we're going to see a lot of things come together. Fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Clarification on Jesus' nature and purpose. A new covenant formed between God and humanity in which Jesus takes Passover elements and shows how they've always actually pointed to him. He is the Passover lamb. And not just for Israel, it's being expanded out for the whole world. And so as we're looking at a few of these layers today, we're going to consider how they factor into a betrayal of Jesus. And we're going to approach these thematically. And it's worth taking a moment to consider betrayal. It's, it's good to camp there for a moment and to bring that in and to feel these things as we read them. It's too easy for us to read over passages of Scripture and not really let it register with our heart. And I think probably most, if not all of us, have experienced betrayal in our lives. It could be a friend, a close friend. It might be a spouse. It might be a workmate. But somebody unexpectedly turned around and hurt you. And what do you do with that? How do you respond? Sometimes reconciliation might be an option, but that is still hard to do, especially if we haven't taken appropriate steps in building toward that reconciliation. Sometimes because of either the closeness or the separation that occurred or how it occurred, it might feel impossible. 
But I just want to tell you that we serve a God of the possible. So I had an experience like this when I was in seminary. Um, I was working and putting myself through school, and Jenny was helping with that and working as well. And um, I was doing landscaping, and I hired on with this small company. And um, they asked me to be working on their, their legal uh, um, writing and on their policies and on training. And I helped with bids and I oversaw three different crews uh, of workers. And so there was a lot of things that were going on. And as we were going, um, suddenly um, the owner ran into some financial snags. And he came to me and he asked if we could start cutting some corners in order to make up margin. And one of the things that we had been working on was a lot of drainage and block walls. And um, you might not see all those cut corners, but I guarantee you there are going to be repercussions if you cut those corners. And so I, I said, I, I can't do that. There's got to be another way, but we can't do that. And so because of that, he then demoted me. And I started working on projects alone. And after a while, um, he tried to replace me. And um, he, he brought in somebody to do work on walls that didn't know what they were doing. And he had to come back to me and ask me to fix the job and tell me what he had done. And uh, then after that, he, um, he forged my signature on documentation for taxes and made me a subcontractor instead of a, an employee and stuck me with a hefty tax bill that I only found out after the fact through an IRS audit. So it was a time, let me tell you, and it hurt. There, there was a lot of pain attached to this, where somebody that you are trying to work faithfully for turns on you. And Jenny and I had a lot of praying to do. And it really was our faith in, in Christ that preserved us through that and preserved our hearts to respond in godly ways back. That took some doing. That season... Um, and others have helped me to identify with Jesus' betrayal. It's made it very real to me, but also to appreciate the way that he loves in the midst of his own betrayal. How do I apply that to my life? So today we're going to return to the Upper Room Discourse in John 13, 18 through 38. So if anybody doesn't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We can run a Bible to you. We've got uh, one over here. And so we're going to be in John 13, 18 through 38. I'm not referring to all of you. And when he's saying that, he's talking about those who are washed, that he's just washed their feet and made them clean. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I've chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. 
And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a, at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charged the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When Jesus was gone, or when Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Right off the bat in this passage, Jesus brings up how the events of this night fulfill prophecies of Scripture. Can you imagine that? Just take a moment and imagine being there in that upper room with the realization what Jesus is telling them is that scripture, the, the communication of God over hundreds of years, thousands of years, is being fulfilled in this evening, in their presence. Can you imagine what that would feel like? I would imagine it would be so surreal. And Jesus is referencing here Psalm 41. In the Psalms, there's a lot of messianic prophecy. There are these things that, that were written down in one context where the author means one thing. They feel things, they sense things, they see things. And yet, God superintends over that writing to point to the Messiah. And it gets fulfilled in this real new way in him. And so here, Psalm 41 is being referenced. And so listen to these words from Psalm 41, 7 through 12. All my enemies whisper together against me. 
They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile thing has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I may settle up with them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my blamelessness, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Jesus is saying that this scripture, while it's somewhat about David and his experience and his feelings, was actually pointing to this moment. It's pointing to him. It's important for us to understand that Jesus is the one to whom the scriptures have been pointing so that we will place faith in him for our salvation. He reveals the betrayal, uh, he reveals that betrayal before it happens so that they won't be surprised. This isn't happenstance. He's not a hapless victim. This has actually been planned from the very beginning. This is part of God's plan that the Messiah will be handed over. And it's going to happen this way. If there was any doubt about Jesus' nature as God in this, in this text and in what was going on, he intentionally uses God's self-revealing phrase to Moses. He says, so that you will believe that I am who I am. That is the exact same phrase, and he intentionally uses it as how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush as he prepares to send Moses to Pharaoh. He's saying that he's Yahweh, the great I am. And this would have hit home in a particular way in that context, in that Passover meal where they're celebrating the deliverance that God has, has made of his people from bondage through Moses. Jesus is claiming the very authority here that made Moses' mouth and sent him to Pharaoh. So Jesus makes this huge statement and he follows it up with, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. This isn't separating God and Christ. Instead, Jesus is saying this to his disciples who must be wondering at this statement, trying to wrap their minds around it. It is hard for us as human beings to conceive of God and man brought together in one person. It isn't our experience here on earth. It is hard to wrap our minds around it. And it was hard for them. It's mysterious. It's paradoxical. And for some, it's even scandalous. For secular humanists, this is all foolishness. For Jews and Muslims, this is anathema. God would not engage in human flesh. He is separate. But this is the gospel message according to John, who was present that night. Jesus is God. It's hard to see God wrapped in a man. Isaiah 53.2 says, There was no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him, 
nothing in his appearance, that we should desire him. Not everyone can accept this truth about Jesus. And we need to remember that first for our own hearts. How do we deal with that statement? But also to consider compassion for those around us who struggle with that concept and who have not placed faith in Jesus Christ. John and Peter seek information about who will betray. And this might be just a little telling because Peter himself will deny Christ three times in a different kind of betrayal. But Jesus lets them know it's the person with whom he shares the bread and gives that bread to Judas. So I want to stop there for just a moment because I've noticed as I talk with believers that when we get to, this, to the person of Judas, there's a tendency to just sort of dismiss him as this uh, easy villain. That he must have been twisted all the way along, that he must have been oppositional to Jesus all the way along, almost like that he came in with subterfuge. And I'm not sure that we can say that. Also, we have a tendency to give Peter and the rest of the disciples a pass. The reality was they're all struggling with Jesus' statement here. They're struggling to accept what he's just said. And you have to think uh, about them in their context. So most of Jesus' uh, disciples, uh, the the 12 there, uh, are named after these Maccabean heroes from about 200 years prior. So the Maccabeans were this family, and and they were part of the priestly class, and um, the, the, the Greeks had come in and taken over Israel and set up pagan worship, and were forcing everybody to worship pagan gods. And these men rose up. And they threw off the Greek oppression and they set up a Jewish throne. And now, about 200 years later, we're under Roman oppression. And there's this pregnant desire, that's the best way I can call it, this desire to create another Jewish kingdom. And the Jewish people are naming all their kids after these Maccabean revolutionaries. And these are the guys who are following the Jewish Messiah. And their hope is to have this violent overthrow of Rome and to set up a new kingdom with Christ on the throne. And they're looking for their place in that new system. And that's what they're coming to this moment with. And Jesus claims both deity and his own death. What a confrontation with their expected way of thinking. How that must have hit them. These are culturally unexpected things. And concepts that don't fit our expectations tend to make us react. And so we need to wrestle with our own hearts with these statements. And and though we recognize that Judas' betrayal was unique, I think that we can put ourselves in the shoes of his disciples. When we sin, when we struggle, when we feel hurt, it's easy for us to turn against other people, and it's easy also for us to run away from God. 
go our own way, just as, as the disciples did. So Judas betrays Jesus over to the Sanhedrin, but Peter is going to deny Jesus three times before the night is done. And all the other disciples will flee for their lives, leaving Jesus all alone to his fate. So there are all kinds of betrayals here. It's Jesus' own disciples, the ones he's already been sending, who are the ones having trouble accepting him. Even so, there's another layer to this. Jesus, I am in the flesh, remains sovereign over these circumstances. He remains sovereign in the midst of betrayal. If you were with us for John chapter 10, you might recall that Jesus said, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it back up again. I want you to notice something else. That it's when Jesus gives the bread to Judas, and Judas doesn't seem to know what's transpired between Jesus and the two other disciples. Satan enters into him. It's in that moment. And Jesus commands Satan, as much as he's commanding Judas, what you're about to do, do it quickly. Jesus is the initiator of the sequence of events that leads to his crucifixion. Jesus is the initiator, not Judas. Jesus is not a hapless victim. And that's another important place to pause. We see Jesus sovereignly initiate these events, and Satan enters into Judas. He possesses him. What does that mean for Judas? What does that mean for us? That might be kind of a scary concept that Jesus would hand over Judas that way. And yet we see, and this is something we talked about in John chapter 12 with the Sanhedrin was when people harden their hearts, God isn't the one who is initiating the hardness of their hearts. He doesn't work against their will. And so what's happened here is something has gone wrong with Judas. He's now pursuing a course of action against Jesus, and he is the one who has hardened his heart. And while this has been prophesied a thousand years before in the Psalms, Judas is the one who is choosing this. And Jesus hands him over. We also need to recognize that Judas was not a Holy Spirit-sealed believer like what we would see in John chapter 6 or in Ephesians 1. That this was before Pentecost occurred. And so these people are interacting with Jesus, but they do not have the Holy Spirit within them. That's not going to happen until later. And so what I'm, why I'm sharing this is I would not want us to worry that as believers sealed by the Holy Spirit, we might be handed over to the devil by Christ. He's not going to do that. He is going to preserve the sheep that he's called, as he's promised in John 6. But Jesus has demonstrated here that he's sovereign over his life and his death, and even how it comes about in the betrayal. 
Jesus' sovereignty is so important for us to hold on to because when we face challenges, when we face betrayals, when we face the things in life that are common occurrences for humans because of our sinful situation that we're in, and we don't know how to face it, we can see that Christ is in control. Even in the midst of circumstances that seem so beyond our control, he hasn't let us go. He is able to hang on to both death and life and be in control of all of it. And so he can be a rock for us. Judas never allowed a redemption to occur. Jesus can redeem broken situations. But Judas didn't allow that redemption to occur. Even later on in his grief, he doesn't stick around to be part of the new covenant that Jesus is making with his disciples. And he doesn't seek. He doesn't believe. And so he goes and he kills himself. And there's another kind of theme in here, another maybe layer, where John is talking about Jesus as light of the world. And we see here, Judas had taken the bread and he went out and it was night. He went out into the darkness, some translations say. And so there's this play on Jesus as light versus Judas going out into the darkness. Back in John chapter 3, he says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness more than light because their deeds were evil. Betrayers don't usually think that they're doing evil. There's almost always a justification for why that betrayal has occurred. And maybe, maybe we've been people who've betrayed others at some point, and we felt that that was justified. We went a different direction we may have opposed, there's a reason behind it. But we need to examine our own hearts with sober judgment. Are we engaging with the light of the world when we are in opposition with another person? Or are we going out into the darkness? Are we capable of betraying other people or Jesus himself? We see that Judah's story is something different. But we can identify when we're hurt or we're angry that desire to be oppositional. And we can wind up opposing God's people. We've probably seen that before in the splits in Christian churches, right? Let's think about that for a moment. You have believers, but they've come to an impasse. And they wind up tearing apart. And yet we're called not to divide. We're called to be reconciled. We're called to love one another. It's when we're facing those hard times that we need to turn our attention back to Jesus. To see him as that rock. To see him as in control of the situation. And turn our hearts to him. So that he can lead us in reconciliation and faith together. John 3 continues, Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. 
if we need to go and have conversations in the dark, in the quiet, out of God's eyes, that's probably not a good sign. Another important layer for our faith in Jesus is to recognize that God and Christ are glorified in Jesus' sacrifice. This isn't a sad mistake. This is Jesus intentionally laying down his life in order to pay for human sin. This is the fulfillment of the promised seed in Genesis 3.15, who overcomes the curse, crushes the head of the serpent at his own personal sacrifice. This is the promise in the cutting covenant that God set up with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, where God takes on the penalty for failure to worship by walking through the animals and parts alone. He's taking on the responsibility to cover over human sin. This is the man of sorrows in Isaiah 53 who was pierced and crushed for our sins to give us peace with God. The purpose for God to take on flesh and to come to us is our redemption. That's what he's here for. Back in John chapter 3, we're told that just, uh, and this is what Jesus says about himself, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, and this was, if they looked at this, this bronze serpent after they had been bitten, that they would be miraculously healed. So just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. We know that Jesus came back to Peter after the resurrection and reinstated him. He comforted those who had run away. And those of us who have betrayed, those who have been bitten by the serpent, Jesus stands for us. He's been lifted up for us. His crucifixion is for the covering of our sin. Praise God. And while this is no easy thing, and we're going to see how Jesus wrestles with this, ultimately, we're told it's for the joy set before him. And that joy is found in human restoration, human redemption. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. God did this so that we might be saved. God did this for those moments when everything feels wrong and we want to run away from God, we want to oppose his people. Jesus has been lifted up for us. This is something that glorifies God. It glorifies Christ to have done this redemptive work for us. The redemption of sinful people is glory on top of glory. Our last layer today is Jesus' command to love. Jesus gives his followers a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another, and it's by this that everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Let the weight of not just the statement, but the context of the statement come home. It's in the midst of the conversation about uh, uh, Judas's betrayal 
and, and Peter's own denials that Jesus says to love. And it's in that context, with that weight to it, that meaning should come to us. This isn't just a general statement of just love. Everything's love. We can just interpret love any way that we want to. No, it is in this specific place where we hit this impasse, where we would be tempted in our flesh to hate, that we're called to love. Jesus had every right as God and as offended Messiah to want to revisit wrath on the people who put him on the cross. We wouldn't have blamed him, would we? But that's not what he does. He goes to the cross willingly. He's initiated it. He's done this purposefully out of love. For those very disciples who are going to help put him there. Where are we at with our hearts? Are there times we're not sure about Christ? We're not sure about who he really is? We're not sure about what he's accomplished for us? Maybe we find ourselves saying, I can't do this. I don't want this. How do we wrestle with that? Do we see that God has loved us in Christ? That Jesus has taken on the cross for our salvation. This command is not just for those in the upper room. It's for every disciple who belongs to Jesus. And we've been called to become a new family that is marked by this love. Think about that. That means... Where there's a command, there's a challenge, right? Because why would we live into a command if there's no challenge? Ever been hurt by somebody else in the church? It's okay to raise your hand. <laughs> if you've ever been hurt by somebody in the church, if you've ever been hurt by somebody in your family, if you've ever been hurt by a friend, somebody who you've broken bread with, maybe for years. Christ stands for us. And that faith in him should help us remember this call and this command to love one another. So we respond back with love, not because it's natural to us, not because it's easy, but because Christ has done it, because Christ has stood for us. And we are not alone. He doesn't leave us alone in that command. He doesn't just leave us to do it under our own flesh. Goodness, I couldn't accomplish that. He gives us his Holy Spirit to seal us and to empower us. And he's given us a family of faith in which we do this together. The very people who might hurt us are also the people that can help us to heal. Why don't we lean into that? Let's lean into healing. I was at a funeral on Friday for my childhood pastor. And 
As we went through the service, uh, one of his sons got up and, and talked about his last moments. And they had come to his bedside and they said, Dad, um, are there any last things that you want us to take away? Anything that you haven't told us that you want to, to convey to us now? And he, he reached out for their hands and he brought them close and he said, love one another. He embodied the love and I'm so glad they shared that at the funeral. It was such an endearing thing to be privy to those last moments of him living into Jesus' words. Love one another. Let's love one another. That love is a radical love. It overcomes the pains and the betrayals. And it's totally dependent on God. John's written this passage to give us a glimpse of his awe for Jesus. The I am who is sovereign over life and death, is intentional with his death for our good. This is God's act of love. And this love is meant to mark us as his people. It's our identifier. Let's lean into that. And in doing so, um, I've, I've got a sheet in the back on the table there. And if you've ever struggled with walking through after a betrayal or a broken relationship, however that's come about, I've, I've walked with people through a lot of different things. And sometimes it's, it, it, we, we sort of try to make it easy and just approach it as if we just apologize, then everything's going to be okay. And it almost never is, right? We, we bear scars. But there's a pathway that we can take leaning into biblical commands and leading into trust in Jesus that will help us build reconciliation. And so I put some of those thoughts down on a sheet of paper there. And so feel free to grab that on your way out today. So let's, let's wrap up in prayer. And then um, we're going to have just a quick Q&A time. Lord God, um, we are grateful for your word. And these are astounding claims that Jesus is, I am who I am. He is God. And as God, he has the authority to lay down his life and take his life back up. Lord Jesus, you are amazing. Lord, help us to be in awe of you. And Lord, we just ask for your strength in following after your command of love. We want to honor you and we want to live according to what you've modeled for us. And we know that you've given your Holy Spirit to enable us to do so. So Lord, help us. Help us to be a people who forgive and a people who love radically. In Jesus' name, amen.